This episode of Tuesday Noon is brought to you by the Constitution of the United States. That's right, Constitution Day is Sunday, September 17th. And to remind us of the importance of that document in our everyday lives, University of Phoenix invites you to visit the Constitution Day website at phoenix.edu slash constitution. Read the Constitution, quiz yourself on your constitutional rights. You can even register to vote right on the site. So take a minute and reflect and visit the Constitutorial at phoenix.edu slash constitution. And now, on with the show. This week on Tuesday Noon, what is it about these so-called echo boomers that we don't get? What do we need to understand to get our arms around the current generation gap? How do demands on time, work, education, and technology define this generation? And what are we doing to help? That's this week on Tuesday Noon for September 19, 2006. Welcome to Tuesday Noon. It is another Tuesday, another noon. And uh, we're back. This is very exciting. What are you talking about Nothing. over there? I'm in the middle of doing the intro here because <laughs> we're, you are... We're, you know, doing finger puppets you, You're and passing stuff. notes. And it's uh, apropos of today's conversation, <laughs> talking about the changing face of education. Uh, and you just took and, the note out of my hands and, and you know, I read it do you in have front any, of the class. Did you bring anything to eat? Because do you're eating under the table. I you're like my fifth grade teacher that busted me trying to pass notes through my lip smacker. <laughs> <laughs> Only a girl. You see, guys would never do anything. You'd roll the lip smacker across on the floor to somebody inside was a note. That's that's a trick. You Remember know, the big, nice fat, trick. huge lip smackers? Yeah, you that, know, I'll bet you were the kind who actually wrote notes on your eyelids, and when you blinked, <laughs> you close your eyes. You, you, you know, I have a out. newfound appreciation for you today after oh, that you? story. Yes, I do. It explains a lot about <laughs> that. I owned lip smackers. Well, no, oh. just the whole note passing and the whole Got thing. It. So, yes. Got it. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, today we are. We're talking about the the. Um, uh, we're talking about Gen Y, Echo Boomers. What is what? They, we've got the largest generation coming up since since the Baby Boomers, uh, and uh, and and they're driving us as educators to change the way we think about doing. Well, they're changing uh, society. Things. I mean, if you look at the Baby Boomers being seventy two million or something like that, it gets a little smaller every day. But you know that that generation is the largest generation, and then the Gen Y or Millennials or however you want to define them are coming through and their attitudes and, and how they want and values and everything is so different. It's just shaping our entire nation. Absolutely. And so we're here to talk about this. We've got a, a, a very special guest uh, uh, coming to us uh, direct from Phoenix via the uh, telephone. We've got Mr. Mark Alexander. Mark, Hi, welcome. How are you today? Welcome to the show. We're all very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks for coming, Mark. My this pleasure. is great. Uh, Mark has a very interesting role at the university. Uh, Mark is the head of Axia College. And, and the reason we asked Mark to come in is, is Axia is targeted at a slightly different group. Uh, Axia has a slightly different mission than the tra- traditional University of Phoenix College has. And it really speaks to some of the things that we're exploring in terms of education and technology and new ways of reaching people and, and people who are a little younger who are approaching education slightly differently. And I'm, I think this is a great topic. This is actually a very fascinating one for me. I've, I've done a few articles uh, on this topic that have been published because it's just it's interesting to note how this new generation is changing the way that we do things and how it's pushing us to evolve and, and do things differently. So, Mark, can you spend a couple minutes telling us about yourself? And Sure. Uh, I've got about 25 years' experience in uh, the field of education, about half of that as a uh, public school teacher, 
Um, my first degree is in music, and I spent some time as a band director for for middle schools and high schools for a long, long time. Very cool. That was my, my first passion in life, but as my family grew, I needed to do some things differently. And so I earned my master's degree in learning and instructional technology from uh, Arizona State University, and I got into the corporate world. I've spent the last 12 or 13 years really focusing on developing corporate training, whether that be classroom-type training or web-based training or computer-based training, um, and developing those programs to help uh, employers make their workforce more productive. I've been here at University of Phoenix for uh, just about five and a half years. I was hired as an instructional designer and moved my way up the corporate ladder where I'm now Dean of Axia College. Very cool. Now, Axia College, it, that is an online program, is that correct? Correct. All right. And what makes it different than the traditional, just to make sure that everybody knows, because I'm sure some people aren't aware, how is, that, how is the Axia program different than the traditional University of Phoenix program? Well, a number of years ago, we noticed a change in the demographic of the student that was coming to the online campus at University of Phoenix. And as you know, University of Phoenix had typically targeted uh, a working adult, and that working adult had a certain level of prior college experience that they were relying upon and drawing upon when they would come to our classes. But what we noticed was a very large segment of the students were coming in with little or no prior higher education experience. And so if, if you think about it, it, it's not a big stretch of the imagination to understand that the curriculum, the support systems, the technology that you use to educate someone who has a good number of years of professional experience and some prior college experience and is a more um, sophisticated or experienced individual is going to be very different from someone who has never gone to college before, whose work experience is very different. So we had to rethink our instructional model. We need to rethink our support systems for those students. And we needed to rethink the curriculum and the way we taught those folks. Uh, and that's what Axie College was designed to do. Uh, we've been around since uh, fall of 2004. And uh, things are going very well. It's always an interesting challenge here at Axia. Well, I think it's it's very fascinating that that we are able to shift and say we, as a society, and again as educators, this is a different group, and we've got to figure out a different way to do things. If you think about Gen Y, their values. This is the, uh, to me, this is the Nintendo generation. This is the, the attention spans tend to be a lot shorter. Uh, they tend to get more of their news from the Internet, uh, media, not as many newspapers. They don't watch uh, Walter Cronkite at night anymore to get it. Uh, they tend to... There are many reasons they don't yeah. watch no, they... Walter Cronkite at <laughs> night anymore. He's dead. He's dead. Yeah, that's one of the... <laughs> hey, I was trying to come up with an analogy. <laughs> Can you give me a break uh, okay. for one? For they once. also don't watch Dan Rather. They're, they don't watch Katie Peter Kirk. Jennings. Okay, and they, don't watch Katie Kirk. they probably don't watch Katie Kirk either. This, but. this is a harsh crowd, Mark. Unless they want to look at her legs. <laughs> now that's just crap. Did you, that is, on is the Today true? Show, though, she always wore skirts because there, uh, a lot of men watched for her legs. True. And there was a period of time where she had really bad poison ivy and wore pants for like two weeks, and they were just flooded with letters and emails from men wanting her legs back. Now, that is something I did not know. What does How that about say that? about our society? I'm we're writing. That's an awful I want to see Katie's legs. Where are her legs? At least we're activists on some level. <laughs> we don't care about politics, but, uh, exactly. hey, where's Katie's legs? Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, we digress. We do digress very badly, so... So what is it that makes this generation so unique and so difficult? 
Dead air side. Oh, that was, that was the question. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was the question. No, I was asking. You know what's yeah. interesting, and and I'll, I'll jump in. Just you talk about about media and where they get their media, and we're in the middle of. I know I've talked about this before, but I keep getting these results back in the middle of this new media uh, survey um, of our own students, of Axia College students, University of Phoenix students, and and our School of Advanced Studies students, uh, to see where they get their media and and where they trust the most, and um, it, you know. The vast majority of them obviously spend, say that they get, you know, they spend, uh, in terms of information search, they get 90% plus from the web somehow. Um, what signals do they trust the most? Local TV. So their nightly news or Is that weird? News. I find that weird. That is kind of weird. I, I, don't, I think it's more their local news than national news. Their local news, yeah. exactly. So what's going on locally. KGW, right. not right. national news. Yeah, what touches right. you locally. So the question then becomes, as an educator, how are you changing your classrooms and your virtual classrooms to approach different learners and different styles? What are we doing? And what are we doing in Axia College? That's right. And one of the things that you said earlier, and I'm interested in, in Mark's perspective on this, is we, we are, as a general statement, this is how I heard it, was we're, we have an opportunity to stand up and affect change, right? And, and think And change the way. My thought is, are traditional educators able to do that? Have we effectively done that? Do we know uh, do, do we know what that looks like? I mean, what we see is, you know, the traditional ed, just about all traditional ed, they're coming out with an online program in some way, shape, or form. You know, we found that, uh, um, you know, particularly at the graduate level, more, more students are getting their MBAs online than in traditional classrooms. What does that represent in terms of reaching out from a distance and being able to com- to offer a compelling educational program without being in the classroom? Is it possible to be as good or better? Well, one of the things I find interesting is comparing the instructional, the educational model that many of us went through a number of years ago and, and what we're trying to achieve with this new student. And, and let's, let's break it down into a, into a couple of buckets here. Let's first talk about how we present content. And let's also talk about how we engage the student instructionally. And, and let's see if we can compare these two things. Let's, let's think about when I, when I went to college. When I went to college, you read your textbook and you attended class and there was lecture in the class. And there was just a whole bunch of stuff that you had to know and study and remember. There were assignments that we had to do, papers that we had to write, projects that we had to create, Something like that. Now, now let's look at students today. Would you say that students today are more or less inclined to read textbooks? Far less. Less. Order of magnitude less. Far far less. So one of the things that we're doing at Axia College is looking for different ways to present content that will engage them in a manner that they're used to. Because if we go back to the early comments about, you know, they're getting their media off the Internet. And we know that when people read things on the Internet, they tend to scan. You know, when we read web pages or news reports, we, we tend to scan those, those items. So how, how can we present content in a way that will engage them so that they will attend to that and they will get at all of the subtleties and the nuance that's part of that content in, in a learning context. And what are we doing on that side? How do we do that? Well, a cu- couple of things I'm looking at is um, we know this generation is, is pretty connected to devices. And these devices 
um, are have these multimedia capabilities, whether it's uh, a smartphone or some sort of PDA or their cell phone. If we take the idea of a podcast like this that is oral, A-U-R-A-L, they can listen to it. And we combine that with graphics that support and illustrate and help clarify those concepts. We know from educational research that when you combine those two together and, and you do that in a well-designed way, that learning outcomes can be higher than either of those separately. You know, the old adage of a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, a picture plus some audio describing it is probably worth 1,500 words. So what we're doing at Axia College is looking at ways to take the content and represent it orally and apply appropriate visuals so that someone can download that onto their PDA or their iPod or a cell phone, and they can engage with that content in that fashion. That's part of a, a broader goal to try and give them lots of different ways to engage with that content. Sometimes it might be these little, um, let's call them vodcasts, I guess, or screencasts, I've, I've heard. Um, it also might be some text. It might be some websites. It might be journal articles in our online library. So we're trying to create as varied an experience around content as we can. Because I, I just don't think that students are as inclined to sit down and read four chapters of the textbook like we did back in the good old days, if you will. Oh, yeah, because I read everything. Yeah, I don't imagine yeah. you were inclined to do much of that no, at all. I, no, I, no. Didn't, <laughs> I didn't buy textbooks. Jamie, so, well, Jamie was the student at the end of the semester who hadn't even bought it. Yeah, that's yeah, right. I, Jamie Whitley, non-example. <laughs> I, I do have a confession to make. In, in, in graduate school, maybe I shouldn't say this on the air, I, I didn't buy any textbooks unless they were a quantitative class and I knew I had to get a test out of it. So, oh, man. Yeah, I went to class and I winged it. Excellent. And I did good. I did have some issues at, at traditional and an undergraduate where my grades went up when I stopped attending class. I would just cram <laughs> for the finals and my grades went up. And so I, I see that more as a provocative correlation than any sort of causal relationship. Yeah, no, but, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, um, Mark, to jump back to your example with the podcast or you know the ability to download, I think that's a real positive in the online environment in general because, one, you do have auditory learners that need... Um, oral presentations. That's the best way they learn, and that's been one of the things missing from online education. The second thing is, is that one, I think, downfall to online education, at least that you hear students talk about, is I'm so tied to the computer. I sit at a computer all day long with work, and then I have to come home and sit, you know, at tied to my computer. They feel restricted. So by creating these avenues where they could do it to a cell phone, a podcast, I could go work out and listen to the lecture at the same time, or I can listen to the lecture while I'm driving. I think all of those things, um, it benefits the student in multiple ways, not just from their learning style, but that convenience factor and flexibility factor as well. Right. And, you know, and that, that presents some pretty significant technology challenges to be able to support all those potential mobile devices so that someone can get to that um, and be able to do it in a manner that's convenient to them. I mean, um, all of these devices have different standards, different protocols that they work under, and um, you know, you wind up having your content in a variety of formats. And that's 
pretty challenging just to create that. And then number two, it's pretty expensive to support all of that. Uh, So we have to make some decisions about what's the most prevalent technologies out there and how are we going to leverage those uh, to serve the greatest number of students. The demands on our time are increasing. And I think we want to be able to do things and leverage our time better. And, And I think this younger generation, because they are so comfortable with technology, they look at it as natural. Well, you know, why shouldn't I be able to stand here in line while I'm waiting to get into the movie and catch up on some topic or subject or something like that? Exactly. Yeah, if they don't have four IM windows open, I mean, if you can't do more than one or two, you're slow. Mm-hmm. And it's just yep. the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing a new student orientation, oh, this was maybe a couple of years ago, and, and one of the students who was a working mother brought her daughter to the orientation. She was maybe 13, 14 and she sat through the whole thing, and at the end, her mother and a few other uh, folks were up talking to me and, and expressing kind of their concerns, and they were nervous and scared about the technology and, and some of these things. And the daughter was just, you know, smirking. And so I said, why are you laughing? And she goes, we've been doing all of this stuff for like five years in high school. We use EBSCOhost. We chat over the Internet with students in other classrooms. We do discussion boards. Um, we do multimedia pieces. We've been doing PowerPoint since I was, you know, in fifth grade, something like And it was just like, wow. I mean, so to her, it was funny that all of these adults were sitting here nervous about what they were to embark on. And so then she teased and said, don't worry, Mom, I'll help you. <laughs> well, and that's a funny comment, too, because it's it's one of those those things. Because, you know, the tra- the non-traditional education model, not just of ours, but, you know, anybody who's who's addressing this, huge population of people who need more education in their lives, career changers, whatever. We're addressing a a technology-phobic group traditionally. And in light of that, when you go back and say, okay, now we're going to go address these, these, you know, kids who are coming from a more traditional university age, we're behind. And a lot of us are behind. I mean, I'm reading this article here on on all the... um, uh, in National Center of Education Statistics found uh, that 44% of all higher education institutions offered courses via distance learning technology. Most of them can't figure out how to offer a degree there. Yeah. Uh, well, educators are behind. A lot of them. I, I talked to colleagues in other colleges, and, and they're struggling with how to touch Gen Y and also struggling with their educators being up to speed on what this means. A, a story that just happened yesterday with uh, one of our colleagues who we've had on the show, Bob Hamm, he went to a conference uh, on the discovery of history, and, and Bob's a great guy and, and, and studies maps and all kinds of stuff, and it's very cool, but it's, it's kind of a limited niche. And he got to present this paper, and he said there were five or six other educators that presented to this group of a couple hundred people, and the other educators that presented essentially read their research papers. Where Bob went up there, he had a PowerPoint, he had some handouts, he had some cliff notes, and he did this interactive presentation, and he felt really bad when he got done because it was so different. And then he said a number of people came up to him and said, oh, thank God you yeah. did something that you just didn't read your paper. We're so thankful that you would do that because that's what society, that's where we're headed. That's what we do in business and in real life. And so many educators don't know that yet. They're not there. And so it's, it's this difficult transition time to grasp these new things and pull them in and figure out how to use them. Well, and some of that comes if you go to the true, true traditional model. 
a lot of the faculty that's on staff is not there because they're good teachers. They're there because of their research projects and the grant money they bring in yes. and how much they get published. Very and true. that is ultimately many times what they're rewarded for, not necessarily how well they do in, in the classroom. Classroom is just a part of the job that they have to put up with. And a lot of them, quite frankly, wouldn't do it if they you know, could. And those that don't get TAs and they take care of it. Yeah. You know, there you go. Yeah. So, but that's, I think, some of that. And so as that model changes around, what that comes to is institutions needing to do faculty development, needing mm -hmm. to provide learning and development opportunities for their faculty as well to, to help them determine how to do things better and differently. You know, there was an article, speaking of, of Portland State University, the student newspaper, and I'll dig this up for the show notes, uh, did a, had an article from a while back where the faculty wrote in saying they did a survey, a self-survey saying, we feel like we are incapable of living up to the technology in the classroom right now, that they need their own training mm -hmm. uh, at, at a major university. I think that's probably pretty consistent. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to change gears a little bit. We're talking about you know ed, the role of education, what these what uh, um, of our role as educators. But the real question for me is, what is the role of education in the life of of, of a Gen Y student of the light over the lifetime of a Gen Y student, to be more specific? What role is education going to play in the way they they live their lives? That's an interesting question, because if you, if you look at statistics that show the correlation between the more education you have, not only do you make more money, but you also enjoy a much lower unemployment rate. Education is an absolute must-have if you want to continue to you know, live the American dream, if you will, and, and be successful in society. Well, and education is the great equalizer, is it not, in, in terms of not only just poverty, but so many social ills and, and challenges. I think the role of education in Gen Y, particularly where Gen Y is such a skeptical generation, and they've seen their parents get uh, laid off from companies all the time, and, and so Gen Y doubts the media, they don't really believe in advertising, hence we're trying to figure out how to market to them differently. I think that the best thing we can do is, as educators, is get Gen Y and anybody in our classroom, no matter what generation, to be excited about the idea of just learning because mm -hmm. learning is cool and learning is important and learning affects your entire life for the rest of your life. And, and no matter how you do that, no matter what outlet, as long as it's not just Fox News at night and, and reruns of The Simpsons and Friends which right. is unfortunately what, what a lot of us do. Yeah, It's empowering. Education is empowering. I think that's um, a big piece that people don't take into account. But when you're doing, say, a capstone with students and you start to talk about what were some of the you know, most important classes or, or what do you think is the biggest thing you're getting out of your degree, a lot of times it's stuff like lifelong learning. I've heard that multiple times, that the discovery of how important that is and how um, it increases confidence. And it, it, it just... It, leads to a better quality of life across the board. That, many times, is the answer above all other things. I think that's interesting. Well, I want to go back to, Mark was talking about the statistics. What, where did you finish your thought there, Mark? I, oh, well, I, I, was, I, was, I was saying that, you know, education is going to be a must-have. I mean, it used to be that you didn't need to go to college in order to enjoy a middle-class living. You know, you it was high school, right? You graduate yeah. from high school, and that was not too long ago. I mean, it was yeah. 30, 40 yeah. years ago. Right. You, you could graduate from high school, 
go to work at a manufacturing company in your region and enjoy a very, very successful life and enjoy all the, the creature comforts that, that our society has to offer. You know, and we'll use the auto industry. You know, you, uh, you could get a job with one of the big three automakers up there in the Detroit area and the union took care of you and you made a, a great wage and you had a nice home and a boat and, you know, good benefits. Well, we know the pressures that those industries have come over and, and that those jobs are increasingly finding it more and more difficult to be sustained at that type of standard of living. And as our society changes, education becomes a critical must-have if you are going to maintain that middle-class standard of living uh, because those, those types of jobs are gone and the new jobs that are replacing them require more education. The second thing I'd like to add to that is that I think we've got to figure out ways for education to be fit in around our busy commuting lives. Those of us who live around large cities here, you know, we spend a lot of time in our cars getting to and from. And, and this kind of ties into our earlier thoughts about, you know, portability and accessibility. I, I think we've got to make learning fit in to all of these places that we have so that people can do it when it works for them, in the chunks that work for them. Um, I think the days of adults setting aside big blocks of time to go get their education are, if, if not coming to an end, are at an end. And, and the example I'll give is my father. Every time he went to graduate school, he would quit his job we would move to that place. He was a full-time student. He would earn his degree. He'd get another job, and off we go. How many of us now would quit our job, move someplace else, live the uh, poverty-stricken life of a graduate student for two or three or four years on the hope that when you finished, the economy was robust enough where you could improve your standing? and get a better job making a higher wage. You know, so way, it begs a question. Now. Well, it's yeah. very risky. I know I, I, I would be in a very difficult position to do that. And it begs a question. It, it, it was a thread I thought you were going to continue to go down, and I want to make sure we go there. It was, it, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was high school. You could live a, a, a satisfying sort of middle-class life. Then it became college, really, over the last 20 years. You had to go get a college degree to be able to, to you know, see what's next in your life, to be able to live that middle-class life. We're, you know, and now we're in this sort of influx of graduate degrees. I mean, the MBA is the degree of our generation, right, my generation. And, you know, now it's sort of you've, you've got to go to grad school. But I'm starting to think that the role of education in, in the lives of this next generation is not a role of degree education. It's not a role of credentialed degrees. It's a role of ongoing, bite-sized, continuing education through the lifetime of your, of, of your career as a student. I agree 100%. Because I, I think that, and again, it's not to say that degrees aren't important, but like I said earlier... And that they aren't going to seek and they degrees. Are, and you're not going to seek degrees because we continue to will. But if I can have folks in my class who walk away really excited about learning and education and wanting to learn more and, and confident enough to explore topics that they weren't confident enough to explore or 
hey, gosh, I would like to know about X, Y, Z, and before they would just kind of pass it off and move on, they say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go take a class on that, or I'm going to do some research on that, and, and I know how to do that research, and I know how to make critical decisions, and man, you, you've done a good job. That, and, and, if we, and I think that's where education is going, is helping to answer those questions here and there, and if you can create lifelong learners, I, I think you've done a good job. Well, and it's almost, it's, it's more than that that the expectations, organizational expectations ongoing are going to be that, you know, we well, you will to. support you to go get trained here. You know, it's it's the whole matrix metaphor. You know, you will plug in and and get this training and this education in and and we're seeing a transition from it's not just about, you know, let's send you to a Perl programming class. It's about let's send you to a leadership development. Let's send you to, you know, Spanish. Let's send you to these typically degree-aligned Well, can I make courses? a social comment about that? I mean, I think over the last, when we went into the industrial age, it was an issue of, well, your job is to put this bolt in this hole, and, and, and so you, there's this assembly line mentality, and it was very task-oriented. And we're moving away from being doing just specific tasks to owning jobs or areas or ideas and teams and communities and so we have to think a lot bigger and so it's not just enough to get trained in visual basic and that's what you do this idea of learning additional like you know Spanish or whatever or becoming a a leader or project manager and being able to do things bigger that's what we have to be able to do because it's not enough just to own one particular task that you do for the rest of your life anymore. So then that begs the question, which I think we've brought up before, um, is what is the role of education and is it is it beyond just content? Is it about developing skills and values and ethics, all of those things that will not only help them be successful in their careers, but have us have a fulfilling life in general? Well, let's make a distinction between training and education. Because I think what you just described, you know, putting the bolt through the hole and putting the nut on the end, that's very low-level, task-oriented. That's training. Mm -hmm. And education is this higher level that we're talking about. What jobs have been outsourced and sent to India? Have they been the higher-level design? No, I mean, it's the manufacturing. Yeah, it's it's the the manufacturing stuff. Customer service, tech support. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think we have to focus education increasingly on that higher level. But here's the challenge. Which comes first? Do you have to have that training in order to understand the nuts and bolts so that you can be that visioneer? Or, or do you, you have to have the education? directly into that, that type of role? I, I'm not sure I'm parsing it right. So is it it's the chicken or the egg? Do you have to be do you have to be well educated to be able to go and see how the pieces fit together so you'll be able to put the nut in the hole? Right. Or do, should you have experienced that sort of first and then work to be able to go appreciate and know what you want yeah. out of your yeah. is that right. Kind of where you're going, Mark? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I guess let me let me say it this way. I'm drawing on my software development days. Oh, man after my own heart. Finally. <laughs> Do, we, do I have to be a visual basic program programmer? Do I have to have that experience in my background in order to be someone who can manage and lead development efforts and identify business needs and business problems that are going to be solved by the software that's being written by a group of uh, programmers in India? 
that, does that make sense to you? It yes. totally. It's, and it's always mm-hmm. a tough question. I always think you have to know enough to be dangerous, to, to be in that position. But how much is enough and, and how much? I think, I think you have to have some level of knowledge. Absolutely. You may not be able to sit down and use Visual Basic and, and do the coding. I don't even know if coding is part of Visual Basic. But anyway, yes, it is. Um, is it okay? <laughs> but um, you need to, I think, at least be able to know what Visual Basic can do for you. Right. You need, you need to have some level of knowledge to see the big picture. And you need to be able to call BS when you, when you see it because you have enough experience in, in that. But if you're just mired in that minutia, then you're not doing a very good job because you're, you're too close to it. It's and, difficult to be proactive and yeah. strategic and a visionary and those kinds of things when you're all muddied up in the details. Well, that's why you went back to earlier. What's, what's important is content's important. And I, I tell my students that content is absolutely critical and important. But more important than content is process, meaning what do you do with the content? How do you apply it? It's, it's the critical thinking skills. It's developing new things, new ideas. It's, it's putting it in a way that makes sense and fits and is successful for you and your organization and your family. It's not just can you take a test with these and answer these 10 questions properly and regurgitate them from your book. It's just that model does not work and it's not effective. And so to me, it's like 50-50, 50% content, which gives you that foundation, and then you got to figure out how to go apply it and make it work for you. That's that's the well, other half. That's the whole Einstein thing. It was not that you know Einstein knew any more than anybody else. It was that he had trained himself to realize that the most important piece is making concrete connections between discrete bodies of knowledge, to make a connection between things that normally are not connected or that, that most people would not naturally connect. And that's what's cool about education. I think if you were to go and ask all of the employers in your area, what do you want out of an employee, someone who has a bachelor's or a graduate degree? My suspicion is that they would say we want them to be able to think critically and solve business mm-hmm. problems and collaborate and do all of those things that, that we talk about, these higher-order things that we're, we're discussing. Mm-hmm. And I think to them, they would say, but it's a given that you have to know accounting. It's a given that you have to know the fundamentals of business. So, so I think education has to approach it from there. there is this body of knowledge, this content that you just have to know. But the real value that you're going to bring is in these other areas. And, and the challenge is getting people to know that content and that body of knowledge in a way that that works for them so that they can get on to those more important skills that we all value when we're looking for someone to hire into our organization. You know, and I'm glad you said that because we have asked our employers uh, what they want out of it. And and it was a little while ago. It was uh, probably two years ago now. But, but their responses were exactly that, although they didn't go as far as to say – you know, it's a given that you know accounting if it's an accounting role. It's a given that you know. There were some that, that responded, you know, if, if, you were, if it was an employer in a securities firm, yeah, you have to know about the securities business. But most of them said uh, you've got to be able to communicate effectively. That is something that this next generation needs work on, frankly. Uh, you've got to be able to work well in teams. That is something that this next generation could teach us about. 
mm-hmm. frankly. Um, you've got to be able to uh, be able to make those discrete connections. That's something this generation could teach us about. I mean, this is a generation of people who is used to and thinks in hyperlinks. You know, one thing is underlined in, I, I was speaking to a cousin of mine talking about this show over the weekend, and he said, you know, when he thinks, he thinks in HTML. He thinks in a way of, of linking discrete documents, and, and that's just the way their minds are, are organized. In working in teams, you, this is the open source generation. This is a generation of people who are linked by nothing more than an email account and, uh, you know, a CVS repository for code. Uh, and yet, they're able to build fantastic virtual structures out there. This is the Second Life generation. If you haven't uh, experienced Second Life, Mark, I don't know if you have any comments on Second Life. Any experience with it? Interestingly, we're, we're taking a look at Second Life and trying to kick around some ideas of how we could incorporate that into our courses. Um, and it's it's interesting because there's there's an awful lot of potential there. Um, we're just trying to come up with creative ways to, to integrate that and create a space where people would go and, and interact and collaborate and engage with content and work on problems together. Can you, uh, do you want to give us just a second on what Second Life is for those who haven't experienced it? Well, Second Life is, uh, gosh, for, for lack of a better term, it's a virtual world um, that you can get onto in the Internet, and it's being used for a number of things. Um, you know, people are creating spaces where they they create um, you know these little businesses, and you go into Second Life and you can buy things in these businesses. There there have been several articles recently about the economies that these these virtual worlds are are generating. People will go into the world and they will create all of these things uh, that have value in the virtual world, and then they will sell them on eBay so that someone can have that. Um, you know, as part of their world. This is uh, so it's 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 a fascinating um, type of environment that people are are working in. We've created a private space that we can kind of play in right now and figure out how how can we do education within that space. Um, but the growth of Second Life has just been phenomenal over the the last year or two. Um, they're they're constantly adding new things to the world and. Uh, people are jumping in and trying to figure out new ways to to do in that new world. It is it is fantastic. It's vast. Secondlife.com. If you've never seen it, I've got them up on the homepage right now. As of right now, there are six hundred and seventy-seven thousand current residents of Second Life. Uh, and you you talk about the economy. That's the thing that's most interesting to me. It's more than just a game. It really is an economy in terms of U.S. dollars. And there is an exchange rate between what they call Linden dollars, the the in-world uh, currency, and U.S. dollars. Uh, U.S. dollars spent in the last 24 hours inside the world, $325,000. Uh, that's real currency exchanged in a day, um, of people buying virtual bits, buying, you know, uh, virtual genes for their virtual avatar. I mean, this is a really stunning place. It's it's directly out of the book Snow Crash, if you haven't read it. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what it is, where you have this world where you can jump in and out of, and we should put the, some information on the, on the blog mm-hmm. that, about Snow Crash, because it's a very famous technology book, uh, and I forget the author's name, so I apologize, but that you have Neil this... Stevenson. Neil Stevenson. Neil Stevenson, I was just going to say, yeah. That you, you've got, uh, you, you have a, a world that you can jump in and out of. It's sometimes difficult to know what's real and what's not, and, and 
you what you do in one world interacts with the other world and impacts and it's it's very much the same thing where are we going to be at in say five years with education how does it look different than it does today in just a few more years i think it will be very different in the way we present and engage with content it will be very different in the way we engage learners in instructional activities and i think a lot of that will be driven by technology i think a lot of that will be driven by our own creativity as we think of new ways to teach people in an online modality. Um, I've been doing a, a lot of reading lately and, and I've run across an, a number of articles on this and they're all kind of posing the question, well, what if online learning were really good? What would it look like? How would we engage those students? What we've, what we've done is we've kind of taken the traditional model and adapted it to an online modality. What if we look at the online modality and look at the technologies that are available and throw out all of the old ways of doing things and, and come up with new, wild, creative ways to engage students? I, I think we'll, we'll be looking at a very different type of learning experience. And, and quite honestly, I think that's going to come from this younger generation as we talk to them about, well, what could you do here? Because as we've discussed, to them it's second nature. I mean, they don't even think about it. Technology is, I mean, it's, it's not technology to them. It's just part of this device and the things that they're able to do and, and the way they use it. And because they think this way and they look at it differently, they're going to be the ones who are going to help us figure this out. And they're going to point us in the right direction. And I think the more we can do to talk to them and ask them questions and show them things, I think they're going to lead us to, to, the, to the right solutions here. It's almost as if we'll know we've made it when it's no longer online learning, when it's just learning. When it's just right. learning yeah. in general. Yeah. Does that mean the traditional classroom is dead? I don't think so because I believe there will always be people who do well in that environment. And I also, I also think that there are certain subject areas where the traditional methods are still the best. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of talk about, you know, being able to train surgeons online. Well, you know, quite honestly, it's going to take me a, a, a long time to go to a doctor who was trained totally online and hasn't, hasn't had that hands-on practice. Yeah, yet, you're the first one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Get in line, right? Yeah. So, so I think some of that depends upon the, the body of knowledge that, that you're trying to communicate there. Well, and I think uh, they'll mer they will continue to merge, too, because we need to extend the on-ground classrooms to more of an online environment to take advantage of these tools and different things. And we haven't yet always done that very well. Part of that's technology. Part of that's the educators. Uh, but, I, yeah, I don't, personally, I don't think on-ground is dead. I think things are just shifting and changing, mm -hmm. and it'll all sort itself out. But... I really like what you say there about that cross-pollination of resources. I mean, that gets back to these to the universities that have great online resources but haven't figured out to offer a degree. I mean, MIT, for example, has made a very conscious choice about giving away just about all of their content in their open courseware project, which is stunning for self-learners, for students, for teachers to get access to this stuff. But they still don't have an online degree. Harvard has lots of online learning opportunities, but they don't have the online degree. They haven't figured out how to make that a compelling value proposition. Mm -hmm. um, because when it comes down to it, I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, do they have a way to keep their rigor and, and brand, the Harvard brand, behind an online degree? 
Pete, that, that's that's such an interesting question because, you know, MIT is giving away all of their their courses. But are you all familiar with David Merrill? Yeah. Instructional designer from Utah. Yeah. Um, you know, he made a very famous comment years ago: "Information is not instruction." Exactly. And, and I think we're we're at a place where MIT has recognized that you know what content is a commodity. It's it's just content, and you can get it in a variety of different ways in a multiple forms. And the true educational experience goes on when you connect people to engage and interact with that content around some agreed-upon goal. And I think that's really where we need to, to focus our efforts is on how do we create that experience. Because I, I believe learning is very social. We learn best when we are engaged with others to solve some problem. Yes, you can, you can learn by just reading a book or something like that, and that has value. But I think real deep learning occurs when it's done with other people, working on common goals, engaged around something that's meaningful to us. So, Pete, I'd like to go back to one of your comments. Why would you say that Gen Y needs to work on communication? Um, well, it's, it, I'm glad you brought that up. When you look at what Gen Y, and, and you know, I mean, it's almost not fair. As I've been saying Gen Y, I brought up the Wikipedia entry on Gen Y, and I'm realizing that just using the term as a pejorative, that is probably not the right term. I mean, the millennial, the echo boomer, there are about 50 different names. Well, but there is a very uh, cutting-edge book called Gen Y, mm-hmm. W-H-Y, question mark, because the Y nomenclature kind of defines their mentality, which is questioning everything. everything. Right. So that's yeah. that's why that has kind of changed. And we should put the link for that off we as do. well. Absolutely. So uh, what they have been brought up on is this online communication structure, which tends to be less rigorous in terms of uh, clarity of language, efficiency of language, Kind of the text messaging generation. It's, it's the thumb generation, right? I mean, it's so, uh, you know, um, asking these folks, when, and this is, I'm speaking of my experience, empirical research, right? Highly rigorous empirical research. Uh, in the classroom with these students, we have far more to work on in terms of getting them to speak clearly and efficiently and effectively in, in presentations and write clearly and efficiently and effectively in, in their, their okay. papers and be able to communicate there. However, communicating with each other is about as streamlined as you can get. It's a whole new language for these folks that, uh, that we have to learn, that I have to take more time to learn uh, in order to be able to, to speak to them. So that's where I was going okay. with communication issue. Yeah. Now it gets to this other issue. That's why I get the, the whole open source uh, movement. is it, it really reflects the future of uh, these people's future, this group's future. So you think they don't communicate well? They, they don't just communicate differently, but they don't communicate well? No, no, no. I actually think they communicate well if we know their language. That's kind of where I'm going. It's if, if um, uh, they communicate very well with one another. They don't communicate well in formal written language and in formal communication presentations. That's my experience in the classroom. Well, I think part of that goes down to uh, some of it, and I always try and drive us to social stuff. I don't know why, I, but I, I picked up an article today, actually, that just came out. talks about junk food, TV, and the Internet are poisoning childhood. And one of the things they're talking about is, is that younger folks are, are 
actually socially not doing well. They're showing more social behavior problems. They, are, they have more depression. They have more isolation, developmental problems, and et cetera. And part of it becomes, so even though you may communicate well with your peer via text and those sorts of things, we're not as good in those settings, like Pete said, like giving a presentation or whatnot, because we tend to be a little more isolated as individuals. And so we're not, we, like, like Mark was saying, I think learning is a social thing, and so we don't bring people together as well. And so then some of those skills aren't as polished as, as you would want them to be, and you hope they will be when, when they go through the educational system. Which is what we owe them, really, is to, is to give them that which they don't get on their own, which we got in many respects on our own. I mean, I, I, uh, just through the social activity. And that's why I think I, you know, worlds like Second Life are so valuable, because if, once we get the technology right, we'll be able to bring together and model some of this behavior in a virtual environment that we just can't do right now. Are you all familiar with the writings of Mark Prinsky? No, that's no. no. Oh, you get, you have to check this guy out. How do you it's, spell uh, that last name? Uh, it's Mark Prinsky, M-A-R-C-P-R-E-N-S-K-Y. And he's got a website called markprinsky.com. Mark Prinsky, all one word, lowercase, run together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the guy's a fascinating thinker. Uh, and he's got a lot of writings about um, educating this new generation. Um, and w- one of the things I was reading just the other day was, was something he calls the Prinsky Challenge. And the, the premise is, who will be the first to challenge rather than blame our students? And so I'd like to tie this into kind of your your earlier thoughts about you know communication. And we're wanting to kind of get them to fit our world exactly. and, and formal communication. And... You made the comment about how, well, they communicate very well, but we need to learn their language. What's changing here? Is, is the way we communicate changing, or are we trying to get them to, to be more like us and do formal communication like we do it? And, and, and how are we going to balance that out? Well, that's a will really this, good point. I mean, will this generation truly change the way we communicate? If you think about it, do we teach the way we learn? Or do we teach the way we were taught? Excellent point. And, yeah, and so, let me, you know, the, the status quo becomes self-perpetuating. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it takes a lot of momentum to get that paradigm to change. And it'll be interesting to see, will these folks, when they, get, when they become of age and they get into the workplace, will they adapt to the more formal workplace as we know it, or will they really change the workplace, and will we have to adapt to them? And really, I mean, hasn't that been what, hasn't every generation had issues with the generation underneath them in some form or fashion, and many times around communication? I I mean, I can remember a boss who was a baby boomer criticizing and complaining about how Gen Xers communicate, and how we were butchering the English language and, and those kinds of things. So... Some, I mean, that's kind of why I was coming back to you and wanting to know what you meant about communication. Was it was there real issues, or it's, was it a generational? No, thing? you know, you're right. I just, I absolutely just framed the generation argument that I am, I am. My expectation as a as a teacher of this group is that they conform to my expectation, and that is is maybe not a fair assertion. Good food for thought. No, that is that is. Uh, that is a very powerful message. That is really interesting. I think if you spend some time poking around Mark Prinsky's site, he's got a, a page under all of his writings. He's uh, he's a very thought-provoking guy, and uh, he's 
you could spend weeks reading and thinking about all of the information uh, on his site. And it's interesting, I've been digging through a lot of his work, and he was thinking about a lot of these things that we're just now getting around to four or five years ago. Mm. The, da- the dates on some of these articles you know, are 2001, 2002, and, and he's talking about a, a lot of these ideas back then. So he's a fascinating guy. If you ever have a chance to hear him speak, he's, he's very, very good. And uh, he talks about digital natives and digital immigrants. And, and this audience that we're talking about are digital natives. You know, they've grown up with all of this stuff. We're the digital immigrants. We've adopted it and said, hey, this is kind of cool. I'll, I'll give you the example of my son. To me, my cell phone is just a phone. It doesn't have a camera in it. I don't check my email on it. You know, it doesn't have all of those things. To my son, my 17-year-old son, that's his connection to the greater world out there. He lost his phone one time, and he was in a panic because his connection was gone. To me, if I lost my phone, no big deal. I'll just go get another one. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Wow. Well, great. guys, this is very good. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your uh, for your time. This has been this has been very good, particularly that particularly that last bit. I just came to a new a whole new realization. I feel like I really have a lot to integrate off of that. Well, we could go on for another hour. Well, oh, we truly yeah. could. No yeah, doubt. And we probably should, just not today. Not today. Yeah. 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 Let's definitely have Mark on again. Yeah, cuz Let's do that. Mark, I hope you'll come back and talk to us. We're going to do some research on Mark Prinsky and the Prinsky challenge. And then we'll come back and be more equipped to, to uh, address this issue. I would love to come back. <laughs> In fact, we ought to try and get Mark Prinsky on this. Let's do, let's that. do that. That is yep. a great idea. I will, let's, let's get a hold of Mark Prinsky. Uh, any other closing thoughts, folks, from anybody? No, I really appreciate Mark taking his time to join us because I know he's very busy. Axia's doing quite well and gaining momentum every day, so I'm sure he's very busy, and it was nice to have him give us an hour. Absolutely. This has been uh, this has been terrific. Mark, thank you so much. And uh, we're going to go ahead and let you sign off now, and, and uh, we will, uh, we'll be in touch. Well, thank thanks you, very much. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thanks so much. Talk to you okay. soon. Bye-bye. Mm, bye-bye. Well, this has been Tuesday Noon. Thank you so much for another fantastic week. And uh, uh, what about you guys? What are you doing this week? Anything big? No, but, you know, I, so much went on today that I'm going to have to spend some time digesting it and thinking about it because I, it's a very fascinating subject. And also I think, and I didn't talk so much in a couple of places because I've got some counterpoints that maybe we ought to put up sometime and, and discuss. So it's good. We'll put them in the blog, Tuesday12.com. Everybody uh, head to the blog, check it out, read, comment, and, uh, and drop us an email. Mary, the show. Thanks. thanks for coming. Oh, <laughs> Thanks for showing up. Thank you. Thank you both for coming to the cave. Uh, Write us an email at the show at Tuesday12.com. And uh, before we completely drive this train off the tracks, uh, we're going to sign off. We're out. Later. This has been Tuesday Noon for September 19th, 2006, a service of University of Phoenix. For more information on the show, catch up with us on our website at www.tuesday12.com and write us. We look forward to hearing from you at the show at tuesday12.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, Tuesday Noon.